death sentence for this week. Uh, we've got... Because we really, really need to get back in Verso Book's good graces after the massacre last week, thanks to uh, Brett and Esther, uh, which we, we had no part of, no none at all. Uh, totally disavow all their comments, which we agree with. And um, I can't believe they said all those things which I 100% think are true. That was just yeah. really uncalled for. I know, right? It's such great plausible deniability for us. Uh, oh, shit, gotta edit that. Um, <laughs> but we, we have another Verso alum today. It's James Bridal. He, uh, his book, The New Dark Age, came out last year with Verso. It's just gone into paperback. Um, fairly recently we i got it i got this book i actually bought it for once instead of like asking a pr flack for it and um loved it and been kind of meaning to do this for a while but then you know stuff life gets in the way uh james is coming to us from greece is that right that's correct yes cool Where, whereabouts in greece uh athens center of athens nice i heard that there's a lot of um since the kind of collapse of the finances there, that there's been a lot of like very cool experiments with like uh, democratic workplaces and awesome stuff. And um, yeah, it's generally a cool place right now. It's a wonderful place. I think um, there've been certainly some experiments. There's also been, as you say, quite a lot of collapse. So um, all kinds of different ways of mediating that, I guess. And yeah, Golden Dawn are probably not the nicest people to have as your neighbours. Yeah, there's there's also that going on. But but to be honest, it's you know I, I try not to speak for Greece. We've not been here very long, but it is definitely I think one of the few places in Europe that thus far, like this might not last, but thus far has managed to, while being the place in Europe to bear the biggest brunt of both the financial crisis and uh, refugee movement over the last decade is also the place that's managed to kind of hold those two things apart, by and large. I.e. that it's the one place that hasn't completely blamed the kind of collapse of society on migrants, despite being the place where both of those forces have really come in hardest. Cool. Good for them. Yeah. So, Take yeah, we're going gonna... to... <laughs> we won't. I no, know we, we'll won't. just... We'll, we'll fuck shit up, as, as we always do and always have done. I'm really excited by the fact that Brexit seems to likely be going through with literally uh, no game plan whatsoever. That's uh, that's thrilling from an accelerationist point of view, uh, especially yep. a, uh, a geocentric accelerationist. I believe in the primacy of stone over uh, organic life and soon soon stone shall reign supreme once more. Yeah, stone's coming back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, James, so New Dark Age. So probably one of my first questions is you've written a book that references uh, the Invisibles, Ian Banks, uh, Thomas Pynchon, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Why did you write a book just for me? It's a weird one, isn't it, that those references are the ones that kind of pop up. Um, thank you for mentioning them because most people don't get so many of those references which are obviously incredibly important to me <laughs> um 
Uh, yeah, because because those are those are my references too. I mean, uh, you know, you could probably find a few few more in the book, but those are, that's a, that's a good subselection of the ways in which I come to understand these things, which are, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying they're not part of the makeup of other people who maybe write about this subject, but I simply haven't read very much by people like that. Um, there's a there's a few, sure, but um, but it's not. You know, the, the writing generally about technology and its intersections with society and politics doesn't, for example, tend to reference literature or art in general very much. So that's, but that's where I'm coming from. So that's why they're there. Yeah, I was going to like, we're going to probably talk about that a bit more in detail in a second about yeah. where this kind of fits with other works of theory and criticism and art in general and where kind of your career is fitted because you've done some really interesting like art stuff and the past so we'll get down to that in a minute but i want to see like go into the title because mm. the title has a pr- i think you mentioned I, I mentioned this to you on twitter that i just got that it was a reference to call of cthulhu and probably some mm, other things as well maybe. yeah like it's definitely a reference to some other things before it's actually a reference to Lovecraft. And the Lovecraft quote that's in there, uh, if you have a copy to hand, welcome to read it, I don't actually have it in front of me, um, is um, uh, is a very good short description of a very key idea of the book. Um, but also, I, and I'm a fan of aspects of Lovecraft. I just wish I hadn't actually necessarily put him quite so front and center um, because he's awful. Yes. He's speaking to someone so, who literally has a Lovecraft tattoo on his arm that he deeply regrets. Right, okay. And he's about to spend Excellent. £200 to get it removed by a laser. I think that's, that's you know, what is the tattoo? Oh, it's uh, a, a picture that someone, I think it's a one of the two like photographs of actually that actually exists of him. Okay, so it's like a Paul Butcher Lovecraft himself, old. Mm, sorry? It's actually of Lovecraft. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. And, that, and he's like thin tentacles and stuff. Just add a hat and some glasses to him. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, uh, this is a tattoo of Richie. <laughs> So, so the, the yeah, so so that's there, and it's it's an important quote. But the, the title actually came. I first encountered that phrase, "New Dark Age," weirdly in a, in an editorial in the in the New York Times, um, which I also mentioned, I think, in the book, which was an editorial that was written by the CEO of like the biggest U.S. weather company, um, in which he talks about how our ability to predict the weather is degrading because of climate change. Um, and he's the one who actually says this. He says, we may be entering... The, the editor was titled New Dark Age. I don't know whether he got it from Lovecraft. Um, but uh, it's titled New Dark Age, and he describes this process by which climate change is making the weather increasingly unpredictable, and therefore we, we're not going to be able to predict things, which is a major problem if you want to, like, harvest crops or fish or, you know, basically provide the structural need provide for the structural needs of like seven billion people in rising um so this and you know this was this was straight up like new totally new dark age thing but that 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 idea that we're passing into a time when we may know less about the world than we did previously was pretty much what kicked off the whole thing and then once i'd heard that phrase it started popping up everywhere 
Um, including, I, I came across shortly after that, the, the Lovecraft quote, in fact, which, which really summarized this idea about too much information and too much knowledge. And those things kind of came together. Um, the one that isn't in there is a Ballard quote that I subsequently found and also really like, which is a real critique of the idea of a new dark age, which I think is also really important because Ballard, Ballard sees a new, the, the desire for a new dark age in um, the kind of psychopathy of contemporary life and, and despises it and says that this is just irrational, unscientific bullshit and you should be aware of it. So it's nice to write the whole book and then find Ballard kind of yelling at you from kind of 40 years ago. Cool, yeah. And Ballard is another touchstone on, which I don't think we've actually discussed in the show. Yeah, but um, I, it, he's a unsurprisingly, if anyone, any listener happens to know Ballard, I yeah, Gareth and I both like him, which which uh, should surprise you on account of all of our other tastes align in a way that would indicate that we like him. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty foundational to like tons of stuff. But, um, can, so, can I? Can I can I read that quote actually? Because I just dug it up. Oh, it's yeah. really good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's actually it's actually from Kingdom Come, which is 2006, so it's quite a later one. But it's really good. Look, I'm going to read it. Um, this is Ballard. Uh, People feel they can rely on the irrational. It offers the only genuine guarantee of freedom from all the cant and bullshit and sales commercials fed to us by politicians, bishops, and academics. People are deliberately reprimitivizing themselves. They yearn for magic and unreason, which served them well in the past and might help them again. They're keen to enter a new dark age. The lights are on, but they're retreating into the inner darkness, into superstition and unreason. The future is going to be a struggle between vast systems of competing psychopathies, all of them willed and deliberate, part of a desperate attempt to escape from a rational world and the boredom of consumerism, which I think pretty much nails it. I, the yeah, only the only part I disagree with him on is the notion that the future will be that as opposed to that being the continuing motif of history is <laughs> well, that like yeah yeah I mean yeah we we see that mirrored in like uh, the uh, intensely psychopathic uh, racism and misogyny and queer phobia of conservatism abroad and fascism but then also some of the more apocalyptic ends of leftism that seemed only envision improving the world on the back of some kind of cataclysmic bloody revolution and yeah like, you really yeah, can't come like bala did from a very kind of privileged position where it hasn't happened to them yet so they think it's the future yeah rather than just being unevenly distributed yeah there's a little william gibson quote there as well that i noticed Always. Um, <laughs> so um where do you where do you see this book fit in because it seems like theory and criticism, but there's also bits in there that you wouldn't find in other books that are similar. They're probably out from Verso as well. Stuff like you actually go in physically to these uh, like internet hubs where all the fiber optic cables connect together or go in to, to look at rendition flights on um, air airports around the world. That doesn't seem like that would come up in um, a bunch of other like, theory stuff. It has that what was your kind of feelings about doing that and how do you think it affects the book in general um i mean i don't, I don't know what my feelings are about doing it just because that's what i do so it kind of <laughs> comes from there i mean it's like so it's, so you can probably put it more on the kind of in sinclair end of the spectrum than on the um 
the theory end because I'm, I'm actually not that well read in theory uh, or you know that kind of knowledgeable about all, all the aspects of it um, most of this stuff is from first principles um, and 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 so that's that's kind of what I would say about it is like this comes from going to those places experiencing them directly and and then and then finding so probably no one's surprised that oh this does align with certain theory or certain thinkers what they've said about this um but i but i've come to it by by going directly to it if that makes sense mm -hmm. um no it does yeah, uh, yeah. like i always thought oh. no go on Oh, I was about to say that your work feels very syn uh, syncretic in that way. Like, it's the fibrous connection between, say, which is a, a big issue that theory struggles with um, pretty routinely. And you, you see that when people kick back against it as being inherently like a petite uh, bourgeois kind of affectation to read theory instead of engage with the world, is there there is always what feels like this gap between knowledge space and... A practical application within the world or a, even if it's just like understanding the world and your your work felt like um a bridging piece there like it like it would be partner to something that like eugene thacker wrote where it's someone who can sit with theoreticians and have a good conversation but then also sit with people where none of the people at the table are theoreticians and still have a fruitful discussion yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, the, 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 point, the, the point is that you're watching me trying to figure this stuff out yeah. for myself. And I mean, I think, I think all theory, theory is that to some level. But I, like my, my first kind of reference is, yeah, it's sort of to myself in that sense. That I need to explain this stuff to myself because I've encountered it directly. And, you know, the whole book is really born out of that in that I always thought I would write a book about the Internet. I always wanted to write a book about the Internet. And I thought it would be a really happy book. <laughs> and then and then stuff happened and we all had to go hang on a second maybe it's not all rosy in in, in cyberspace um and how do we account for this because because it goes against some naive now but deeply held feelings about what this was all supposed to be like so you mentioned ian sinclair uh, again someone who his work i've admired for the ages um so his whole thing about psychogeography which actually i think is pretty situationists kind of like invented yeah, yeah, we can go back further than that. yeah but um do you feel like you're doing psychogeography when you're going out to these places yeah totally and i meant i bring up psychogeography in the book just for those who aren't familiar with it but i also think it's been like completely you know sunday supplemented by <laughs> uh kind of world self and others I mean, I kind of love self in various ways, and he's been very kind to my writing, I should say. But, um, but, but you know, it's sort of become a bit poppy. Um, when really it was about, like, how much you could trip yourself out in the city without necessarily being on drugs. Um, like, it has a deeply, like, surreal, intensive, transformative aspect to it when you do it right. And, like, you can do it by going for a good walk and looking for weird stuff uh, and it's an incredibly powerful technique like it really really works um and uh and so yeah i'm absolutely doing psychogeography with the emphasis on that you know first couple of syllables in going to look at these places um 
because by going and doing it directly, you really encounter them. Like you can write all you like about, um, you know, the sort of the 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 I don't know the kind of black messinessy of of like cyber virtual networks, blah 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 blah. But until you've gone and spent a day in Slough and seen it being like terraformed in this way. Um, there's something that very different, I think, about that experience that kind of really roots it into place. It's why it's why like lots and lots of artists are all hanging out on beaches and looking for fiber optic cables and all this kind of stuff. And I, I think there's so much that as well is that we're all very much aware actually that this purely technological, technocultural kind of analysis has not produced anything very useful for actually dealing with the situation. And that the imperative is really to kind of reconnect a lot of this technological discourse with the ground in some meaningful way. Um, so I think maybe there's something there's something kind of useful in that. Yeah, definitely. I can see like the idea that, that the Internet is a cloud. It's just out there and we're tapping into it like some sort of a classic field in occultism. It's actually just some boring buildings in Slough with fat cables running across the world, in which you very cannily point out in the exact same way that like uh, colonialism and imperialism would spread around the world, like from London down the coast of Africa, across the Americas and so on. Yeah, like there's yeah. The, the important historical um, information of how the internet was built especially through the 90s and early 2000s with initiatives to where you find out there are whole like chunks of the earth that literally didn't have internet until like 20 or so totally unrelated countries decided on funding for one big branch and that basically determined whether someone could enter the proper 21st century it was like oh these other people can't figure out a funding dispute or like what mining company is going to get the contract in order to create the borehole for uh for the internet tube to or the big bundle of cables to come through this mountain it's like yeah like like it, it distributed it fairly well in kind of north america and europe quite quickly through various means um but in a, i think it also just still in a lot of the world the internet feels like something that's mostly ever elsewhere um as well like it's not it's it's, it's not everywhere by any means, you can feel further from it in other parts of the world, um, and um, which, which you know, I can flip into something hopeful and say like that also means that there's the opportunity for us to build different internets at the edges um, of the current one and, and transform that um, because this this kind of endless kind of hegemonic smoothing growth is not does not exist at present and will not I think actually really continue for much longer. Yeah, there had been a lot of um, a lot of concerns, especially with um, rising nationalism in America. The, uh, Brexit po posing a fairly big existential threat to the notion of the internet. What with London and Britain, the British Isles in general being such a big hub for the internet, of like, what big catastrophe could potentially break our one internet into a dozen or more local internets that maybe have loose contact with one another but aren't aren't as fully integrated as they are right now. And, like, uh, tech people looking at it being like, oh, we're actually wildly underprepared if that were to ever happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A lot yeah. of things would very foundationally break because they require 
pinging between information that's stored all across the world because we sort of took that for granted as a thing that we could do. And so certain infrastructural capabilities would just... It wouldn't be irreparable, but it would be like it's a serious undertaking to replicate them in a local manner. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the process of like relocating all my data to the Swiss mountains. Um, and I'm also thinking a lot about like what the, the, what the kind of ecological um, areas look like in a very kind of likely future of which bits of the world will actually be meaningfully connected to one another. Um, and therefore where what networks you can you can potentially rely on in a kind of four degree warmer world um, what what energy sources will will be reliable within your kind of local area what communication channels will actually continue to function and therefore where we kind of have to start thinking about kind of pre-positioning useful information um, to continue to be useful when those walls go up and a lot of the wires kind of come down or just become a lot less efficient than they are at present yeah, raise so how, oh. how do you move your move all your data to Switzerland? Is there like a, a place in Switzerland, like a Swiss bank that just takes your data? Uh, it doesn't just take it. You have to kind of like poke, poke them a lot and learn a bunch of new service stuff that I didn't know about before, and it's really complicated. And I keep breaking things, but uh, but yeah, you can you can you can rent servers in Switzerland, and they're under Swiss law, therefore not under American or EU law. Uh, they also have a lot of hydropower there, so it's much much more. I mean, as much as anything is, but it is more green uh, to have uh, to use to use these particular setup that I'm using. So that's what I, I asked, like, what's the most environmentally friendly and privacy protecting um, place currently? And everyone's like, get a hydro-powered server in the Swiss mountains, um, which is fine until they trigger the redoubt and cut themselves off from the rest of Europe, which will probably happen at some point. Yeah, I've heard that Switzerland is basically a giant trap. Like, yes. there's like all the uh, buildings have bombs in them to collapse them on invading armies. Everyone has an assault rifle. And uh, yeah, it's a really, really weird place to. Yeah, it's called the National Redoubt. And it's the plan to basically cut itself off from everything else in the need of that doing so. I don't know how it applies to the internet. It's a very interesting question. If it, it actually applies to communication links as well. I mean, I guess it'd have to because you can do a lot of damage through the internet nowadays. Mm. Like if you're going to fortify so your country, you Switzerland can... can basically air gap itself. Wow! The rest of the world, potentially. <laughs> At least he's got good chocolate. Uh... Yeah. Well, so... I need to admit that's a good question. Actually, can Switzerland genuinely air gap itself? I'm going. Oh my god, I'm going there this week, last. Oh, cool. I, I, yeah, I hope, enough, I hope like I'll shit let, doesn't go know. down. And you don't get air gapped. <laughs> <laughs> I know worst places to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could sit by Lake Geneva and wait out the apocalypse. It's bound to be better than the rest of us, like killing each other over canned food. Well, the, this is the this is a this is a genuine question that I think about it quite a lot. It's like, where are we pre-positioning ourselves for this this what is we know to be coming down the line? Um, mm. I moved to Greece like four years ago, and um, Greece is quite obviously going to be outside most of the big walls that get built because it has an indefensible coastline. Um, so the wall will be built further north. So like we're, that, that geography is already becoming quite clear. And like maybe I've made that choice already by being here. Um, the UK is clearly making certain kind of collective choices at the moment. The US has clearly collectively already lost its head. Oh, so yeah. like that. <laughs> 
Um, you know, so but um, within Europe, I think there's still a bit of kind of positioning to be made. I hope that when the coming well-deserved or uh, well, well-deserved in an anti-white way, race war uh, sweeps across America, which is how we're going to deal with it. Um, I hope that I'm mercifully killed quickly. That's that's my real goal, um, which I say only in a half-joking way, given the rising, like, intensely rising white supremacist uh, ideology. It especially feels like psychotically rising in the face of things like the existential threat of global warming. I feel particularly concerned that America specifically will... I, frankly, it's because it's it's as big as Europe that it's going to have the same number of reactions as all of Europe, but it'll feel like a much bigger dissolution because of the connective fibers. Sorry, it's cl- near and dear to my heart being an American who will likely die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like well, maybe you'll die in the like Republic of West Virginia. They'll last about an hour before it gets nuked by the Confederacy of North Virginia or whatever. Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be fantastic if I just got wiped out real quick. Um, I hope the white supremacists lose. That's uh, and but then again, you're fighting over the remains of a rotting, poisoned earth. So I don't know if winning is actually what you want. But whatever. <laughs> cool. So uh, yeah, this has been a, a always a weekly dose of pessimism about the future. Um, before we go on. Let's uh, let's take a break for some music because you know music will, will enlighten us and uh, bring us back and make us happy again. Um, let's listen to Two Mold. With um, so if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know Two Mold really came out with an incredible album last year, Manner of Infinite Forms. It made a lot of best of end of year lists i think it even made ours and it's, it's so good that now there are already two mold haters it's the death yeah. metal equivalent of saying kendrick lamar isn't any good or beyonce's bad and it's like that's a that's a lie you know that's a lie like, yeah it's a lie you're making up just for clout just stop it okay <laughs> just revel in how good this is so they had a two single a two song single last November called Cerulean Salvation, which was really good. Oh yeah. And uh, that those songs are now on an album called Planetary Clairvoyance, which has got a quite nice uh, confluence with some of the stuff that we're talking about on New Dark Age. Uh, honestly, like in a non joking manner, extreme metal tends to have that. Like it um ironically it was both sci-fi novels and extreme metal and just lit- coming across a catching phrase or seeing a catching line and then like googling after it to be like oh what else is here that eventually i this may have happened to you too gareth that eventually drove oh, me yeah. to like eugene thacker and um just deeper and deeper into certain places it gave me the same kinds of dead ends of you look you eventually find like reza negaristani i think i pronounced this name correctly who has mm-hmm. interesting ideas, but ultimately very flawed ones as well. Uh, you run into Nick Land before he went super racist. Um, and then yeah, and... I got to watch him become racist. That was <laughs> wild. I hated yeah. it. <laughs> I think he did too. I think he did that... I tried to publish Razor Negostani 15 years ago, I think. If you want to, like, where, where things 
come apart and come together again. I tried to publish in Azar Agostan when I was working as a publisher in the UK, um, like 15 years ago, um, having no idea what it was, except that it seemed like really crazy and interesting. And I didn't manage to persuade my boss to print it and put it out into the world. It was a that got re-encountered and then re-encoded back into things. It was a little kind of pre-echo that turned out to be super important. Cool. Yeah, yeah we can we can dive yeah. into that. That triggers a couple thoughts that I want to dive into in, in, in part two of some mm -hmm. idea spaces that linger around your book but seem to have collapsed by now. Um, Two mm -hmm. Hold feels very fitting um, for for this whole topic space. Also, they fucking slap. Yeah. If they I need slap to go so hard. If I need to go extinct, if I need the fuck-ups of generations past to existentially annihilate the cursed race of man, I want it to be to rip in uh, techie, proggy, gross-as-hell death metal. That's just how I want to go out. Yeah. And you're gonna, because we're gonna play uh, the the song uh, i thought you were threatening to kill me <laughs> oh no yeah what well, i don't need to threaten because it'll, it'll happen soon that's true uh so oh, i'm trying to find what the song is called uh infinite resurrection from planetary clairvoyance and um <laughs> yeah even that is like infinite resurrections like you know nietzsche you could like there's some kid who's going to discover philosophy for the first time through two mold songs so hi if you're that guy um yeah this is uh infinite resurrection by two mold of planetary clairvoyance and it fucking slaps
Ghost Tomb Mold with uh, Infinite Resurrection off of Planetary Clairvoyance. If you can hear that string of words and not immediately uh, lose your shit, I hate you. I don't like you. Um, but Death Metal is the sickest, tightest thing in the world. It simultaneously is a marriage of lit, crazy, dumb shit and really smart shit. And that's that's the best. It's, mm-hmm. It reminds me, and this is this is a good transition. It reminds me of a good, uh, a good theory text or a good approachable theory text, even um, although inapproachable ones have this too, which manage to keep in mind that the aesthetic of the sentences on the page are as much a part of the theory as the thoughts. We had that sort of false road in the early, uh, in the late eighteenth century, early twentieth century, where we were getting very. Uh, Hegelian and you know we had like our whiteheads and our Russells trying to work on philosophical problems in a purely analytical way and ran into the same set of problems in a recurrent manner which is that you can't divorce the discussion of experiences uh, from linguistic slippage basically like Wittgenstein's whole thing basically revolved around that and uh, Gerdell in certain ways as well uh, all of which prefigured by Nietzsche like you can't discuss these things without language and the gaps within language and perception of language being baked into it and you can either lean away from that and pretend it's not a problem because because you're stupid or or lean into it um and you know that's where we get you know all this beautiful contemporary stuff like the like uh the work of James Bridle here, who we have. I don't need to reintroduce him. You've been listening oh, to no. the same episode. I just, I'm really, I'm just really humbled that he's actually on our show, and I keep having to pinch myself. This is. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Um. Yeah. So the thing that I wanted to bring up when we were talking about um, uh, Tumult briefly, and and Reza Negaristani is that your book seems to have hints of object-oriented ontology in it that sort of um theory space that existed in like a brief bubble in like the late 2000s to to early 2010s was that a deliberate kind of association or was that more incidental based on uh maybe drawing from similar uh pools of inspiration um i know i mean i i've engaged with some of that stuff um uh, as I say, I'd kind of encountered Negostani's work in probably the mid-noughties. Um, but also, I think, you know, I had a much closer shave with all of that around this project that I had kind of six, seven years ago, that was before then and continued afterwards called The New Aesthetic, when I was kind of um, just looking at the weirdness of the digital as, as it appeared in that particular moment. Um, I but I, I said... Like Warren Ellis, the comic book writer, was big on that. For, for yeah, while. Warren talked about it quite a lot, and uh, Bruce Sterling wrote about it, which really got everyone kind of popped up and excited in kind of weird ways. But it was a particularly... I, I, I did something in the way that I talked about that project that that got a lot of other people really, really excited about this thing. Well, they all thought I was talking about the thing that they were already interested in or that they wanted to be interested in. And so the object oriented ontology people were like, oh, yeah, this is this is OOO. This thing he's talking about is OOO. I had no idea what OOO was at this point. But also, like, marketing people were like, oh, we could do the newest thing in marketing or in fashion. <laughs> wow. Like, it was the most insane kind of like <laughs> um, 
uh, I, I did a talk at South by Southwest about it, which is weird, uh, where, where <laughs> I, I opened with a slide of Alistair Crowley, and I don't know if that, um, specifically uh, like about the power of naming things, and I don't know if like by invoking Crowley, I caused this whole thing to happen, or, um, uh, or if that was kind of already what, or I was just channeling it because that was what was going on, or probably a little bit of both. Um, but there was some kind of weird nexus of, of those kind of various ideas, um, yeah, ha happening, happening around this like naming of digital things, which I, I, I think is what OO does to some extent as well, though it kind of again, um, in my very limited knowledge, does some kind of, um, uh, it wraps itself up in a kind of theoretical basis, is also about kind of destroying a lot of that. Like it's, it, 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 it's very close to kind of chaos magic mm. to my reading than, uh, I, than actual I, kind of theory. I, I would agree. I mean, I think that's the biggest, um, on one hand, it's the biggest critique of something like OOO, and also on the other hand, it's probably its biggest strength too, is that you yeah. kind of have to be mildly illiterate to think that it's exactly the same as a, any other theory text but it also as you were saying deliberately positions itself more to be it to be fair it's a it's a bold affectation that it's going to reach the same heights as someone like Nietzsche who was pointing fingers at more systemic philosophy and going here's faults inherent to systemic thought uh that it's it's probably not actually at that same like bold of a peak, but at least felt that same kind of resonance. Your work obviously feels a bit more comfortable with the notion of these existing pools of um, pop cultural understanding of certain very complex social and physical concepts and then the parallel theory space. So, yeah, uh, I think a, a great benefit not only of like the thoughts in your book, but also the writing of your book is it feels a lot more sympathetic to those being parallel, um, perhaps syncretic spaces rather than uh, rather than being at all. Well, rather than other. spaces that have sort of discovered this stuff by accident. That's what that's what that's what always frustrates me about theory. It tends to write about the rest of the world as though the rest of the world has like stumbled upon these deep truths you know, while yeah. wandering through the forest looking for flowers, rather than being as valid a way of, like, developing them as a kind of philosophical construction. And I think that also hits at a, a routine critique of, of academia in general, of being relatively um, chauvinistic in certain ways towards uh, a very Western approach, and that, say, things like indigenous bodies of knowledge aren't as valid because they weren't built through the academic structure, even if or like the way that they encode their information through stories or through ritual is somehow less valid than a scientific one, as opposed to uh, the same level of critiquable. It can still be just as right or just as wrong, but judging more the aesthetic of the encoding of the information rather than the information itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, mean, I, I just I, I immediately go to like... Um, uh, what's his face? Uh, kind of temporary autonomous zone. Um, yeah, uh, uh, I don't remember poetic, the guy's name. Poetic, poetic, hacking Bay, thank you. Poetic terrorism stuff around, like, you know, if some shaman has something in his toolkit that's useful to me, then I'm taking it. I don't really care 
like what the the process of Genesis was that that imbued this um, this this metaphor, this object, this whatever it is. Though that's a good thing. Whether this thing is a metaphor or an object, I don't really care. If I can jimmy it into this crack to pry something open. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty cool attitude to have. And it does, yeah, yeah harken back to, you know, chaos magic. Even Crowley has come up again. Yes. And now speaking of when I was speaking of magic, um, tell me about that. I, I guess art project you did, or mm-hmm. uh, where you use uh, salt around uh, autonomous vehicles to bind them like demons. That that was yeah. cool. Yeah, well, that, that was part of a, a, an ongoing project around actually trying to build my own self-driving car, or to the extent that I could, at least to program all the, the bits of it that I could program without having an actual self-driving car. Um, it was more about training an AI, or not, these things aren't AIs, they're just kind of quite uh, weird bits, weird kinds of software. But I, I wanted to, I did a project a, couple, a year before that, so this is like three, four years ago now, where I tried to use the weather to predict Brexit. Um, or rather, I tried to say how you could affect the Brexit outcome by uh, engineering the weather, um, which is a whole kind of meta comment on the way in which uh, computational truth is developed and the, the, the belief in kind of um, causation over correlation and various other things. But I did this whole project where I trained an AI on, on cloud cover and Brexit polling results. Uh, and it was super fun and interesting, but I'm I also basically hired someone else to do it, um, as in I hired someone else to do the heavy lifting of the coding, and I came out of it not really understanding what it did. And and so this is like the psychogeography thing, again. Um, you have to do it for yourself to actually really understand what's going on here. Um, mm-hmm. So with a bit more time on my hands, I decided to do this with um, uh, self-driving cars, which is basically training a, a neural network machine learning system to drive which meant driving round and round in the mountains with the, in a hire car with a bunch of cameras taped to it, feeding into a laptop, recording speeding drive. Basically, having a machine watch me drive and try to learn by doing that. Um, that's how you train a self-driving car. Um, and so I was doing that, and then I was also, I was also super fixated on this idea of um, how you could make something that both you and the car could see, or not specifically the car, but these kind of networks, these 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 nascent AIs, uh, which we're building, which are really a whole other conversation about what artificial intelligence is. But um, just yeah, that that question, like how do you how do you share um, how do you inhabit a shared sensorium? This actually goes way. This is very OOO and new aesthetic-y. How do you inhabit a shared sensorium of humans and machines? Like how do we, how do we both see the same thing in the world? And 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 thinking through that was how um, how the autonomous trap came out. Um, one of the ways that I explain it is by talking about gravity hills. Um, gravity hills are these places in the world where um, you go, you drive up a hill in your car, and you're halfway up the hill, and you stop, and you take the handbrake off, and your car starts to roll uphill. Um, oh yeah. The- there's a feeling that they call like the Devil's Passage or something, and yeah. there was one like when I grew country, Like people have, they're very odd. But what they are is a kind of uh, a, a, a problem with the human visual system, where something about the landscape convinces your brain this road is, is going up when in fact it's going down. 
that's, that's, that's sorry to burst anyone's bubble who really believed in gravity hills out there, but that is basically what's happening out there. And I was just obsessed with this idea of how you find these like kind of cracks and hacks in a in a visual system or whatever, um, and, and and also how you make that disparity of vision visible to an outside observer so that you can understand what's going on in this moment. And so that's where the track came from, which is, yeah, as you say, it's a salt circle around a, a self-driving car, but particularly it's a salt circle that's a, a inner dashed line and an outer solid line, which replicates the um, uh, the EU standards for a, uh, a no entry. I, a car that's trained to obey the rules will see itself basically surrounded by a no entry line and so therefore it can't move outside of the circle. So it's like a kind of trapping a demon in a in a sort of circle. Um, and sort cool. makes it kind of deployable, right? Because you don't need paint yeah. whatever you, you can just put it out there. Um, That's really cool. Uh. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a nice thing. And then it, like it's it's also like even though I didn't end up building a, the self-driving car, it's like totally doable. It's like the day after I made it, someone sent without even knowing I was doing this, someone sent me a video of um, someone had taken from their Tesla in the US who was driving behind a, 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 a truck that was salting the road because it was getting cold and was laying down salt in lines and the Tesla kept trying to like lane jump because it was reading these salt lines as, as, as lines. So this, this totally worked. Um, and I hope to see like kids in the future like running Ubers off the road by, by doing Because <laughs> um, it is a technique of resistance, right? It's a point of saying like, how can yeah. we stop you know, automation, technological process, progress in this sense as a whole. How can we like resist it in certain senses? But it's also, I kind of realized this this desire to find some kind of shared space with technologies that are also often perceived as being oppressive and often are oppressive, right? Like, and I mean, like, the sort of, it's a really aggressive gesture. It's what you would do to a demon. <laughs> but but this thing of also trying to find the shared space, by which I mean the point at which, because the lines are visible to the machine and to the human. So those lines constitute a shared system of representation. Uh, and there aren't many of those about at present. Like machines and humans think in these radically different ways and the exploitation of that space, that gap is, is what causes a lot of the problems that I discussed in the book. So finding genuinely shared representations, even just artistic representations to point out that those shared spaces exist, I realized kind of retrospectively was a super important part of that. Yeah. And one of the, it kind of reminds me of one of the parts of your book that really stood out to me, which is the the game of Go against the, with the AI beating yeah. a human um, Go master. I think he was like yeah. one of the greatest in the world where the, the machine just suddenly pulled off this move in a 2,000-year-old game that no one had ever seen before and completely won and just trounced this guy who's been working on this game at the top level for his entire life. Yeah, that was huge fucking news in computational uh, computational journalism and also like games and game theory journalism when that happened. Like that was, uh, it was like a heart-stopping moment to a ton of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just, it, 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 like all the language they use around that is really fascinating like everyone who talks about it you know both lay people but also like the people who really built this thing and studied it both on the computational side and on the game side 
they all describe it as alien. They all just say it's like mm. an alien intelligence arriving amongst us. It's the yeah. moment well, when something like deeply inhuman, yeah, yeah, something deeply inhuman appears on the scene in it a really reminds, meaningful way. It reminds me of like the only practical application of the ideas that I'm going to say it, Gareth, that Dao Lin was playing with, because <laughs> uh, he was a dumb guy who read books that were too smart for him. Um, is precisely that notion that you were getting at is the notion of um, a shared sensorum so that even if you don't have the same thoughts, you can at least think as something else does. You can at least understand the mechanism of its thoughts. And the difference in that between, say, being able to anticipate an action versus knowing how it arrives at that action and knowing how it experiences that action, all that kind of stuff. Is that like animal behavioralists spend a lot of time doing that? Like um, the breakthrough of determining what language constitutes to different animal species, sort of reframing our notion of humans being the only ones that have language. And it's like, well, no, we're the only ones who have a very specific kind of language. And it's true that for a highly vocal language, that's the rarity in the animal world. We have a particularly nuanced and developed one. But the notion that deliberately symbolic communicative acts don't occur is now just stupid like you can't say that and have anyone take you seriously in the world of animal behavioralism and likewise the notion of at least pseudo neural um relation of thoughts and ideas within or even just mechanical problem solving in say plants or fungi is um beyond mundane like, it's correct that it isn't precisely parallel to human thought, and anyone who has these weird uh, psychedelic dreams of, like, a big fungus brain in the Amazon, it isn't quite that, although that would be so goddamn lit. But they do form pseudo-neural networks and trade information and make informed decisions based on sensorial data to move in certain ways, to um, to act in certain ways, which is if we don't self-glamorize the human condition, uh, that's exactly what we do. We just think what we do is fancier. Um, so it's less that other things are more advanced and more that we are less advanced than we think we are. And having that kind of mental shift allows us to look at machines doing these kinds of things and go, like what you're bringing up with the question of what constitutes an AI. I think sometimes we raise the bar too high, more out of a self-aggrandizing glamour of what it means to be human in all capital letters mm -hmm. that isn't very important. Because we look at things that take in data, that crunch that data, make an informed decision based on options from that data, and have sensory organs, have sensory computational organs, and even have mundane things like waste byproducts and the need for physical well, and, space. And, and... And crucially, increasingly have actuators. Yeah. Like, can transform that decision into an action in the physical world. And so it's like, yeah, it isn't a perfect parallel for human, uh, human life, but at a certain point, that becomes almost a slippery slope where we're constantly redefining the broad notion of intelligence. It feels as narrow as the very um, sort of colonial colonially and racistly constructed notion of IQ, which repl which measures a real sense of pattern recognition, but we've since found is a very narrow band of what intelligence can be and can manifest as. And Absolutely. It feels like the same kind of thing, that we've defined the only way that we can call an animal 
or um, like a plant or fungus or a fish or a machine intelligent is with this increasingly narrow it's it's like the non it's like the non-theistic god of the gaps <laughs> okay. yeah, right. and it, it's just fascinating that it's that it's precisely in this moment that we're i don't know like both of these things are happening at once at once we're starting to like build mach, like non-carbon based life whatever machines or whatever that are exhibiting these kind of behaviors just at the same time as we're acknowledging the intelligences of non-human life of other forms and that those things are both happening at in pretty much the same moment within the same kind of 20 last 20 year period that this has really started to roll up with like a complete revolution in the cognitive sciences in studying studying non-human species and in kind of artificial intelligence as well and that like this 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 deep kind of um, i mean this massive copernican trauma is approaching when we are very obviously not the smartest thing around, um, uh, and and like our survival depends in the present moment, like very clearly on both being able to deal with that in some meaningful, hopeful way, uh, and also simultaneously to recognise the 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 intelligence and agency of other non-human species. Like for me, there's uh, this is something I'm thinking about pretty much constantly at the moment and really trying to figure something out because it seems that, that in there lies some really potentially terrifying, useful, interesting connection between our attitudes towards technology and our attitudes towards the environment. Um, and and that, it, that it's couched somehow around questions of intelligence and nature and behavior and agency um, that, are, that are like currently exploding across kind of multiple disciplines. Mm. Yeah, I've always found it so strange that the gold standard test for artificial intelligence is a Turing test, i.e. can you have a nice conversation with a person? Do they come off as like you in some way? Mm. When there's, We found since Turing that there's so much intelligence out there from you know, orca whales to slime molds to go play in AIs that is so nothing like us that the Turing test seems completely redundant. It's even more redundant than the IQ test. It tests for something that's, that's happened once in all of human in all of the universe, as far as we know, which is the evolution of the human mind, and doesn't test for the billions of different ways that intelligence can manifest in nature that are totally alien to us. It reminds me of, and this again ties back to the thing in art and why I think that, I mean. You're talking to two people of art degrees who happen to like theory, so you're in good company with the thought that art can explore the same theoretical concepts just encoded in a different language set. But I think we see the same permutation where early sci-fi views like the cybernetically enhanced human as being essentially a person, but you have a clamp hand or something. Um, I, I really want a clamp hand. That's ab I need a pneumatic clamp for a hand so I can just crush stuff ultimate stress relief just pick something crush it um but then we see in cyberpunk and especially certain post cyberpunk thing uh works like neil stevenson do dove into it warren ellis dove into it james moody actually the guy who wrote garden state with his uh novelization of a 50s b movie called four fingers of death which is a fucking great book by the way um 
dove into the same kind of thing that why would we be so limited in our imagination if we can encode our consciousness and upload it to anything? Why would we make it look like a person? Like, why wouldn't we do all the weird science fictional fantasy uh, horror inspired modifications to the human form and make it utterly alien? Like, why is it that we are so constricted to this? For me, I think it also ties back at some level to our innate fear, a fear of death that is so profound that we would choose to drastically misinterpret and misunderstand it than approach some level the decentering of of humanity. Because I think to some level that mirrors a kind of psychic or existential death to people. That when you realize not just you specifically are very small and you specifically have a finite birth and a finite death and that's just coded in, but literally all of humanity, maybe not even the universe, but specifically humanity is basically like a, a microorganism in the broader. And this seems to trigger weird um, anthropocentric like chauvinism in people that seems in any other way to be like a deeply illogical and baseless but it's like oh shit i can't cope with that oh fuck <laughs> yeah so yeah uh, so before we go full in, into the deep end and decide to upload our consciousnesses into the cloud via dmt or something um oh by the way listeners if any of you have any dmt can you send some to me Really and me. Do some, yeah, let's do, let's do DMT on the show. That'd be um, wild. Yeah. Listen to Harsh Noise Records while fucking blasted on DMT. That'd be crazy. <laughs> I'm yeah. straight edge, so I have no idea what would happen. <laughs> yeah, you'd probably stay in the fifth dimension. But yeah, um, anyway, the void. Uh, enough solicitations for drugs. Um, <laughs> so, James, what what's up next for you? Because you know, New Dark Age has been out for a little while. Uh, what what are you working on apart from like uh, hiding in Switzerland from the apocalypse? Um, uh, the, the stuff we've just been speaking about about uh, this question of how you actually reconnect some of this stuff to to the contemporary environmental situation is very much it, really. Um, I think that that seems to me to be a, some kind of urgency, and I'm. Both genuinely concerned and like genuinely interested to know if there's. I'm just. I'm just not really that. I, I find myself suddenly and surprisingly not very interested in the internet, which is a bit of a blow because it's pretty much all I've been interested in for close to thirty years. Um, and so I, I have to figure out quite quickly what I do with myself. Um, uh, like very seriously, I mean, I, I think I can listen to you guys. You, you share this to some extent that this, like, it's just, it's just not very interesting mm. right now. Yeah, like I it's this huge roiling mass of, of awfulness and kind of stuff, but it's not doing anything. It's like the, the thing that's always had me excited about the internet and about technology in general is that it will continually produce like new affects, new things, new experiences, blah blah blah. And it's just not. Um, mm. Oh yeah. It, it seems uh, like know. since the lead up to Trump and the lead up to Brexit, there seems to have been like a psychic stoppage that has affected right. everywhere, including the internet. 
Yeah, so you know, that's very specifically, like I said earlier, that I wanted to write a book about the internet. I thought it would be really happy, and and and, and unfortunately, I wrote it precisely in the moment between uh, um, Trump's election and the, and the Brexit referendum, or at least that's when I kind of pitched it, and it kind of fell out of exactly that pocket of time. Um, we're still sort of in that pocket, but um, but it's very obvious we don't have any kind of current useful responses to it. Um, and yet, at the same time, these kind of interesting things are happening. Um, whether that means like the birth of non-human artificial intelligences or whether it means environmental devastation, this is noise, it produces stuff. Um, and so like finding a place within those um, where the things that we have learned remain to be useful, I think that's quite key. Because also, you know, in the book I talk a lot about how our current kind of contemporary technological understanding is part of our inability to respond in meaningful ways to, to climate change, for example. Um, therefore, I think a changed understanding of technology has a useful educative role enabling us to respond in some way, God help us, to, um, uh, to climate change in the wider environmental situation. Um, and, and some of those things are going to be, you know, more local. Um, the, my guiding text for the last couple of years has been Amitav Ghosh's uh, The Great Derangement. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. No. Um, it's a fantastic book. I really can't urge anyone not to read it enough. Um, to read it enough, whatever those. Um, what was the name of the again? The Great Derangement. The Great Derangement. Um, oh, wait, no, I have read that. Yeah, no, I... I read that when it uh, when it dropped. Actually, I was like, "Wait, that's familiar for some reason." It's it's quite something. He does he does a, yeah he by does... Matt Tybee yeah. He... No, no. Oh. Right, Amitav Ghosh. Anyway, Amitav Ghosh is great. He does this. He does this thing where he does a couple of things. He like tells a like a he kind of tells a decolonizing history of petroculture where he talks about where um like the the discovery of oil kind of pre-imperial, the way that was kind of overwritten by it, the British Empire and the relationship between imperialism and climate change. That's one big strand of it. The other big strand of it is he writes as a self-described bourgeois novelist and the inability to the bourgeois novel, but by extension, kind of all forms of storytelling to deal with climate change in meaningful ways. This is really key. Like, how oh. do we tell stories at this scale? Sorry, there was, um, there was another big political nonfiction book that had the exact same title. I, I, I found the one that you were talking about. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I type it right. Type like, are right, but he was yeah. he was was at the I, exile, and we did not talk about that. Yeah. No, I I was intrigued. I was like, oh, I didn't expect you to be given big print. And then yeah, no, I uh, yeah by Amitav Gosh, yeah, I'm looking at the. Apparently, if I learn how to read, that would help these things. You'd be surprised how much I literally <laughs> don't know how to read. <laughs> um, That's a major anyway, the one final thing that he says very briefly in in the great derangement um he talks about um he talks about the time he talks about time he says that um he says that climate change inverts the temporal order of modernity um by which he means that you know the future used to be produced in the imperial center uh in the metropolis and would then kind of trickle down to the edges of of, of, of the Imperium, to the edges of the Empire, and to the colonies, and so on and so forth. Um, climate change now means that the future happens in the deep ocean, in the high desert, in, in, in Antarctica. It happens in the far away, 
and comes back towards the center through the periphery. Um, so the periphery is, is now where to be if you want to think about and engage with these things. And that seems to me to both like um, be a very interesting statement if you're into subcultures and weird shit anyway. <laughs> like that just is like, well, yeah, we know that already. Like that's where the interesting stuff happens already. But also, uh, you know, both like philosophically and, and kind of culturally, but increasingly geographically as well, which is also always where subcultures have kind of happened more interestingly. Um, but also with massively important kind of architectural technological implications uh, for how we should be building and designing um, like networks and cultural systems in the present moment to actually to start to respond on that as well. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about. Cool. I also want to give a uh, point any listener towards uh, James Bridle's also fantastic uh, new ways of seeing, which fin finished airing not too long. It, it is finished, right? There's one more episode going out this week. Oh, okay, yeah, so it's actually one more Four episode. It's utterly fantastic. It's um, at least inspired by John Berger's uh, like phenomenal uh, ways of seeing, which... Um, any, I assume literally anyone from Britain hearing this will know immediately what that is. Uh, for Americans, it's less circulated, but it's probably the best pop art criticism television thing like ever made. It's absolutely fucking incredible. And uh, Bride, it really does hold up to an incredible degree. It's quite I, something. I watched it again last year with my partner who'd never seen it, and I was like, again, gobsmacked by like so fucking good like got as fired up about it as when i was like 15 and got it from a library on vhs and stuff um <laughs> and yeah, yeah. never stopped being good either i mean just to be clear like he's yeah. he's, he's one of the ways i think we'll look back on and be like someone who absolutely maintained their kind of status and their acuity and their passions throughout the entirety of that way and you know, he made that in the 70s but he was still writing absolutely crucial stuff into the northeast yeah, ab absolutely phenomenal guy. And you look into his politics and you find out he wins the man Booker. He uses his prize platform to uh, lambast uh, the sponsors of the award for uh, being colonialists and then gives half the money to the British Black Panther Party. Fuck yeah. yeah. It's like, fuck, this guy rules. That's and, how yeah, you so, write it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, also... Uh, to, to throw it back to you, though, your new ways of seeing so far has just been absolutely incredible. Just Yeah, I'll put, a, put a link to that in the show notes as well. So yeah. folks at home, you can go check that out. And I'll put a, link, a little link, too, because I see all of the original John Berger ways of seeing is on YouTube. So I'll put a little link to that in there as well. You know, just you know, give back to the community a little. <laughs> so, so, yeah, um, folks, do go out. If you haven't already, I think Verso... They do occasionally do nice little ebook deals where you can pick up a book like um, New Dark Age pretty cheap. But if not, then paperbacks out now, so it's even cheaper. It's and exactly the kind of book where you're going to read one paragraph, put it down, and have to talk to somebody before you read the next paragraph. And meaning that in the good way of like it, it feels like it contains a ton of fruitful thoughts, and also written impeccably, so it it doesn't mm, feel definitely. inapproachable either. Yeah, it's it's we've we've probably been way more technical in this episode than the entire book. It, it's very very readable, readable, approachable. Like the object or orientated ontology is not mentioned, but it's it's there if you want it to be. Um, 
which is very well or very not. I'm not sure. I never got that whole philosophy movement. Well, it fell apart, so you don't need to ever get it again. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Um, yeah, so folks do check this out because it is like i say really good i think it's probably one that we're going to be kind of mentioning again because like like landon says there's a load of like thoughts you can just take and and run with and it's about the most important stuff in the world like there's very few books that deal with as much important stuff in as short a time as this one so do check it out but um you know what's also good is uh really nasty a technical black metal uh, by False out of Brooklyn, I believe. Uh, they're on Gilead Media, which is like, I think we mentioned last episode, one of the like uh, record labels that consistently puts out only good stuff. It's like knowing a really, really cool and uh, hipped person who constantly recommends you new records, except it's just on this one record label. Um, so they've got a new record out soon. Uh, it's called. This one uh, has a name. Portent. Oh, f- funny, funny, uh, funny little factoid about this. I I mentioned to Adam like it's really fucked up how the new false record has a name, and he was like, I tried convincing them to release another untitled record, and they just wouldn't do it. And I was like, you did, you did God's work. The record's probably immaculate. I've since heard chunks of it. It's fucking great but yeah he uh he very nearly was able to convince them to do yet another untitled record yep so no more untitled with this it's called it has a name its name is portent and it's gonna come out july 12th so you got a little time to to work up to it can do some like musical stretching just like really work on like getting ready your body and mind for this release um so the the song we're going to play is called A Ritual to Our Dead Selves. It's 10 minutes long, but actually nearly 11. So you know, strap yourself in. And yeah, false, just absolutely fucking rule. Um, really can't say enough good things about them. There's been kind of a, a dearth of good black metal recently. I think death metal has kind of come back. And, you know, we've seen that with Two Mold and Outer Heaven and loads of artificial brain loads of great albums but blood um incantation oh love yeah that was the one i was going yeah love yeah it. blood education who like instantly became a classic band on the same level as like obituary or someone just <laughs> one release and then it's really already... dumb and wonderful how much everyone's like no that's great yeah you're you're in <laughs> yeah you're, you're as good as death now and um yeah so but yeah black metal's kind of I don't want to lay the blame at, at like Black Gaze and and specifically um, Deaf Heaven, but uh, Black Metal has kind of fallen to the wayside a little bit. But but False uh, keep flying the flag. And, well, I mean, uh, to, to, to not dive too deep into it, there is a lot of um, Death Metal sort of rejuvenated itself by relearning why those classic moves work the way they do. Not just learning to replicate them, but learning like, what am I supposed to be, like, making the listener feel when I do these fucked up, weird, atonal things? And then relearning how to get that feeling. And there was that period where black metal outside of, like, the black gaze and the experimental stuff was... It felt like it was just sort of going through the motions. Like, mm, the 1349 yeah. record was good, but it felt like 
another black metal record. Mm. Um, yeah. There's a lot of another black metal records going out, out there. Yeah. And while there are plenty of like great contemporary black metal bands that have been making fantastic uh, black metal, like the newest Prowless record, Wolf, was, was fantastic. Mm. Uh, yeah. False is another one of those groups where you listen to it. It doesn't sound like they're doing avant-garde shit. It just sounds so good that you want to call it avant-garde because your brain's like, well, if I call it normal-ass black metal, it sounds more boring than the record is. The record's actually fucking tight. Um, <laughs> and normal-ass black metal was always weird and experimental. We've yeah. kind of forgotten that. It wasn't just that one dark friend record. There was a whole load of weird shit going on. Like, first Ulva, first Emperor. Anyway, you don't need to know about all that. Just, just listen to False. Just read New Dark Age, listen to False. They would go very well together, I feel. They would, yeah. So, yep, this is a victual to our dead selves of Portent by False. And, oh, um, yeah, follow us on Twitter, at DeathSentencePC. Um, subscribe to our Patreon. That's always good. Uh, we've put out a lot more episodes on the Patreon now. We've had some really, really good ones lately. Um, and lots of discussion of Grant Morrison because, you know, we, we, we stand him. We, we stand. And, um, yeah, Patreon. Um, Patreon.com forward slash death sentence. Um, James is on Twitter at. What, what's I'm not on Twitter. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Tell people to join Mastodon instead. Just to be clear. <laughs> okay. okay. No, we're not. We're not doing that anymore. No. No more Twitter. No Mastodon. more Twitter. Yeah. Do you remember okay, that? James like, just like... cancelled Twitter, so yeah. you're going to yeah. have to get a Mastodon account now. Remember just like this week about a year ago where everyone joined Mastodon like en masse? Yeah, there's, there's just, still like, three of us away. there. Can you come and join us, please? It's getting lonely. Yeah. I, I went on it for a little bit, and I, I gotta be honest, the uh, people's posting game was, was pretty whack. I don't think that's the fault of Mastodon, and obviously I, you know, I wasn't following every single person on Mastodon. I wasn't on every single instance, but it was unfortunate that it seemed that... Uh, uh, a lot of the people that joined it just really don't, they don't know how to tap into the chaos energy that you need for something like uh, like social media. Yeah, I think we've kind of forgotten. It's like black metal again. We've kind of forgotten what was so weird about it in the first place. And now we're just going through the motions of posting. We need to it rediscover was, it. It was weird and beautiful before, and now it's just full of horrible, horrible people. Yep. And we better... There is so much racism and not enough weird shit. Yeah. This is the problem with the world at present, yeah. yeah. That's, 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 that's the thesis of your book. That's the thesis of our podcast. It's just, that's, that's, that's the theme, baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's 2019's, um, like, feel. So, yeah. Uh, listen to False. 